us now into the sermon, into the series that we've been exploring for the last several weeks. It's called Gather, Grow, Go. We're exploring these themes from the Gospel of Matthew. So let's take a moment. Let's bow our heads. Let's clear all distraction from our mind. Let's lean in and get our hearts ready for the Word of God. Father, we thank you. We love you. We honor you. And we praise you for the opportunity to come together as your people at the Shaw campus, at the U-City campus, and, uh, and our brothers and sisters that stepping into the light, and people joining us all around the world. We thank you for the opportunity to gather as your people. We ask, Lord God, that in this time you will grow us, you will strengthen us, develop us, empower us, Lord God, and ultimately, God, you will deploy us. You will send us out to be your emissaries and your ambassadors of love in the world. We love you, we thank you, we praise you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. All right, I want to ask a question. I think we're going to get a big response on this question. My question is this. How many of you can recall a Christmas as a child where you were excited about Christmas morning? Can somebody, can somebody join us on that, right? Christmas morning, at least for me in my house, Christmas morning as a child was extremely exciting because we would come downstairs at my house, my sisters and I, we would still be in our pajamas And we knew that under the Christmas tree, there are going to be a bunch of gifts. There's going to be brightly wrapped gifts, and we're going to tear open these gifts, and we're going to get something out of Christmas morning. For a child, Christmas morning is really, if you're really honest, Christmas morning is about receiving. Your your, your Sunday school teacher will tell you, Jesus is the reason for the season. But when when the adrenaline is pumping, and when you're tearing open that gift, you're not thinking about Jesus. You're thinking about, what do I get? What's in it for me? Uh, as an example of that, I, I, there was, a, there was a, a viral video that went around a while back of a kid's reaction to finding the special Pokemon card that he wanted for Christmas morning. Check it out. Check out his reaction. Where's our sandwich? Can I All right, so that's what it feels like when Christmas morning is all about you. There's delight, there's glee, there's joy, right? And that's what we experience as a child at Christmas. But as we grow, when we get to be teenagers, uh, hopefully, if we're, if we're maturing well, Christmas morning isn't just about us. It starts to become about others experiencing the joy that we're experiencing. So hopefully as teenagers, we start to think about maybe I should buy a gift for my brother or sister or my sibling or my parent or a cousin or a family member or a friend, right? As we grow even further and we become adults, uh, as we mature, Christmas morning becomes even less about us and about us creating an environment or an experience for those who are younger than us. I would propose to you today that our experience of Christmas, that maturation growth we experience around Christmas is a metaphor for the Christian life. When we become followers of Jesus, when we first step in and we become babes in Christ, we become babies, baby Christians, 
The initial experience is something, maybe not quite that expressive. It depends what church you grew up in. All right. <laughs> but, but the Christian experience, the conversion experience, when we first become Christians, we go, at least for me, my experience was, was really self-directed. I was so thankful for God's forgiveness and God's blessing and God's guidance and God's peace and his comfort and provision and all of the things that I was experiencing when I moved into experiencing Jesus as, as my savior. But then as I began to grow as a Christian throughout my time as, as a Christian in the first couple of years, uh, I began to realize that actually Jesus wants to develop something in me. He wants to strengthen me. He wants to grow me. And then as I continue to develop, and this is where many of us are, God, God starts to show us that he's, he's actually developing us, not for our own development, he's developing us to deploy us. He's actually strengthening us so that he can send us. This is the whole premise of the series, is that he's growing us so that at the end of, of, the, of the chapter, at the end of Matthew, at the end of the book, he grows us and then he turns to us and he says, now you go. Now you go and proclaim the gospel to every creature. The, the, the spiritual life, the life of the Christian can be distilled down to something like this. We are called in order to be committed. We're committed in order to be commissioned. So, 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 so we're drawn in. Jesus calls us as his followers. And then he feeds us and grows us and nourishes us. And then he starts developing us. He starts saying, I want you to take your cross. I want, you to, I want you to sacrifice. I want you to, to lean into what I'm calling you to do. But ultimately, it's not, we're not being strengthened so that we're strong. We're being strengthened so we're sent. We're being strengthened so that he can send us out. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at, at the moment in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus begins to pivot his followers. He's, his disciples have been coming to him. He's been teaching them all through Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7. He's teaching them. He's growing them. He's putting the seeds of his word in. He's building them up. But then we're in Matthew 14 today. And in Matthew 14, he, he starts to make a huge twist, a huge turn to his disciples. And he starts to go, now let me show you what it looks like for you to do, for you to go and do what I do. So let me walk us through the story that we read in Matthew 14. This, this is a powerful moment in the life of Jesus and his disciples. It starts in verse 13. It says, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Now let me just pause and give you some context about what's happening in this moment. When it, when it says, when he heard what had happened, what had happened right before this is that his beloved cousin, John the Baptist, the one who had baptized him, the one who had proclaimed him, first proclaimed him to be the Messiah, the one who had essentially launched his ministry, he heard that John the Baptist had been killed by King Herod. John the Baptist had been in the prison uh, under King Herod's palace, and Herod brought John the Baptist up, and we won't get into the whole story, but he beheaded him. He, in, a, in, a, in a brutal fashion, he took John the Baptist's life. Jesus heard about this. This is his mentor. This is his beloved cousin. This is a family member. And, and, and so he's retreating to a solitary place where he can grieve, where he can spend some time alone. He needed some time to, to, to rest and to reorient and to refresh himself. So he and his disciples get in a boat. And by the way, his disciples were exhausted too. His disciples had just gone on their first missionary journey. And so they were tired. In fact, they had been serving the crowd so much, the scripture says, that they hadn't even had time to eat. 
They were tired, they were hungry, they were worn out. Jesus was grieving, Jesus was mourning. They're like, you know what, guys, let's just get in a boat. Let's go find a beach. Let's go relax. We'll cook some fish and just, you know, take it easy. So, so they're heading out to find a solitary place. But hearing of this, the crowd started hearing, hey, Jesus is coming up to Galilee. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. So you got to get the picture. Jesus is trying to find some quiet time, some me time with his disciples. And people are like, man, I hear Jesus is coming. So crowds are starting to come all around uh, the, 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 the edge of the Sea of Galilee. When Jesus landed, Jesus and the disciples landed, they saw a large crowd. So people had already gathered before they even got, got to where they were going. Jesus saw the large crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. So Jesus, in this exhausted moment, this moment of grief, this moment of mourning, still has compassion on the people. He says, still, let me teach them, let me heal them. So, so the disciples who had been with the crowd the whole time are just like, let me get out of here. You know, let, do we have any introverts in the crowd? I know you probably don't want to raise your hand, but okay. Um, uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's like you're, you're, you know, you've overstimulated. You've been around people too much. You're like, what I need is to be with nobody. I don't want to hear anybody. I don't want to see anybody's face. I love you, but get out of my, get out of my personal space, right? That's where the disciples are at. They're tired and, and they're hangry. Let's just be real. They're like, have you, have you ever been hangry? Anybody? So it's like, you know, they hadn't eaten. They're kind of ticked. And Jesus is out there going, come on, guys, let's go heal people. Let's be with the crowd, right? So they're tired of it. Jesus had compassion. He's, he's healing them. So the disciples come to Jesus, and, and it says this in verse 15. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said to Jesus, Jesus, this is a remote place, and it's already getting late. And then they turn to Jesus, and I love what they said. They say, send the crowds away. Get them out of here, right? Now, I love what they do. There's a, this is a great like, psychological move they pull here. What they really mean is send the crowds away so that we can eat. But they know that if they say that, Jesus is going to rebuke them. So they, they put a little spin on it. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and get something to eat. Right? Meanwhile, if the crowd wanted to leave, Jesus wasn't holding them back. I mean, they were hungry. They could have left. Right? The disciples are like, we, we got to figure out a way to get Jesus on our side. Let's use his compassion against him, okay? So let's get the crowds away so they can, give, uh, some, they can get something to eat. Jesus' reply was something they did not expect and could not have imagined. Jesus turns to them, verse 16, and replied, they don't need to go away. And then he said something they didn't want to hear. He said, you give them something to eat. This is a big moment. This is a big moment in the life of the disciples. Because first of all, think about this. The disciples and Jesus came over in the same boat, okay? The disciples knew that Jesus knew that they didn't have any food. The disciples knew they were incapable of feeding this crowd. Scripture says there were at least 5,000 men, meaning there were, you know, potentially with ch children and women, there could have been 15,000, 20,000 people. It's a massive crowd. They have no food. They're in a remote place. There's no access to food. And Jesus is telling his disciples, I want you to feed this crowd. I want you to give them something to eat. Now, what is Jesus trying to accomplish here? What is he doing? He's trying to teach them something, and he's trying to teach us something. What he's trying to teach them is that he wants to move them from consumers to contributors. 
Follow me now. He's saying, look, I've been, I've been drawing you in. I've been leading you. I've been teaching you. I've been nourishing you with the word of God. But I, and so you've been consuming what I have to offer. But when I say you give them something to eat, what I want you to do is I want you to do what I would do. I want you to pour out. I want you to send out. I want you to give. I want you, I want you to do for the people what I would do for the people. I want to transform you. I want to reshape you. I want to change you. I want to move you from a, from a guest at the table to a child of the house. You're not just consuming. Now you're preparing dinner and you're serving dinner, right? Uh, whenever we do our next steps, one of our dream team members, Sandy Ray, she's on the next steps team and she helps to serve all the new members that come in. And I love what she says when she introduces herself. When we, when we introduce ourselves, we all say what our role is. When, when it comes to Sandy's turn, Sandy says, uh, my role is that I'm one of you, she says to all the new guests. She says, a few months ago, I was sitting at a table just like this, eating food prepared for me just like this, and I was, I was consuming. She said, but then I turned around, and now I'm here serving. I'm a contributor. This is part of the, the growth pattern that Jesus has for us. He wants to grow us from consumers to contributors. He wants to tell his disciples, I, I want to I teach you, I want to build you up, I want to strengthen you, but ultimately, I've got a plan for you. I'm trying to send you out. I'm trying to make you my hands and feet. I want you to break the bread and send, and send the nourishment out to the people. He's moving them from consumer to contributor. And they are a little bit annoyed and exasperated by what he says, because you can hear it in their voice, in their response, Matthew 17. He, they say this, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish. In other words, the, the, we don't, we're not equipped to do what you're calling us to do. We don't have the capacity, the ability, the competence, the materials. We don't have, we're not able to do what you're calling us to do. You're asking us to do something that is impossible to us. But what Jesus is doing, he's drawing us, he's drawing them, he's drawing us into this new reality where we become followers of Jesus because he wants us to move from self-reliance to divine dependence. Whenever Jesus calls you to be a part of his kingdom, he's, he's calling you to rely on him to do it. Put that next slide up. He's calling us from self-reliance to divine dependence. He's saying, listen, I'm going to ask you to do stuff that you cannot do. Do you realize that when you follow Jesus, he's going to command you to do things that you can't do? In fact, just a couple, uh, a couple chapters earlier when he was preaching, uh, one of the things that he says, he ends this great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. You, know, you want to know how he ends the sermon? It's like, the, it's like, I can't imagine ending a sermon like this. He ends the sermon in, on the Sermon on the Mount. He ends the sermon by saying, therefore, be ye perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. End of sermon, altar call. <laughs> Like, if I'm in the crowd and, I'm, and that's the end of the sermon, I'm like, uh, okay, what do you mean, right? Jesus is always calling us to do something that we cannot actually do on our own, by our own strength. So when we hear Jesus' commands, what we end up doing is we end up falling on what I would call a, a, the slingshot spectrum of overconfidence and self-doubt. So, so there's a, there's a, think of it as a spectrum. When Jesus says, look, I want you to step in. I want you to, to, to grow in your faith. I want you to serve somebody else. I want you to lead somebody. I want you to serve in some capacity. I want you to give. I want you to grow in some way. What happens is we either have overconfidence, 
where we say, okay, I got it. I'll just do it. I'll do it on my own. I'll make it happen. Or we end up in self-doubt where we go, there's just no way that I can do it, right? We usually end up in one because both of these mean, both of these are, are, are we experience these because we're relying on our own strength. Let me give you a great example of this. When, when <laughs> a, few, a few years after the, the feeding of the 5,000, um, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's about to be arrested. He's about to fulfill his purpose by sacrificing himself on the cross. Uh, and the, the soldiers come and the high priests come and all these people come to arrest him, right? And in this moment, Peter decides, you know what? I'm gonna take care of this situation. I'm gonna take care of the Roman Empire. I'm gonna prevail personally over the Roman Empire. And, and what happens is what I call the Malchus incident. The Malchus incident is when Peter pulls out a sword and he tries to attack the soldiers and the high priest. And all he ends up doing is cutting off the ear of the high priest's servant, a guy named Malchus. It's just like, that didn't help, Peter, right? That, that actually was not helpful, right? <laughs> Why does Peter do it? He does it because he's, he's trying to do something by his own strength. He's, try, he's trying to accomplish something by his own strength. He's trying to accomplish something by his own power. And whenever we do that, Jesus just has to, Jesus ends up cleaning up our mess anyway, right? I mean, think of, think of this. Jesus literally, guys, I'm serious. Think about it. Jesus has to lean down. Pick up Malchus's ear. Sorry, Malchus. And then he has to put it back on his head. Right? Because, because, because Peter was overconfident. When we act in our own confidence, when we try to step into something in our own ability with pride and hubris, this is why I called it the, the, the slingshot effect because what usually happens is we move from overconfidence to deep self-doubt. Because failure then drives us to self-doubt, right? So literally hours after Peter's like, I'll take on the Roman Empire, whoosh, right? The next thing, first of all, he's not a great aim either. Like, I'm sure he wasn't going for the ear, okay? So, but right after he fails at that, just a couple hours later, when a servant girl says, wait, aren't you a follower of Jesus? Remember what happens? I don't know him. Never heard of him. Not me, right? Because he went way, way down into self-doubt. Overconfidence, self-doubt, it's a slingshot effect. And so what, what happens is, is Jesus is trying to teach us, he's trying to teach them to not rely upon their own strength, their own power. He's trying to teach them to rely on God for the, for the task that he has assigned them. So this is why he says this in verse 18, Matthew 14, 18. He says, bring the five loaves and the two fish to me. He says, I know you don't have enough. I know you're incapable. I know you lack the competence to do what I'm calling you to do. I know that you lack the, the, the effects that, that you need to, to accomplish what I'm asking you to do. I know that you don't have enough, but bring me what you have. Sometimes we just need to come to Jesus with the little bit that we have. I mean, can I just be honest with you? I do this every Sunday. Every Sunday I do that. I come to God. Like I get up, I, as I'm preparing for a sermon on Sunday, I'm like, Lord, I'm not smart enough, articulate enough, learned enough, scholarly enough. I don't, I don't really have what it takes to do what you've actually called me to do. And every week I have to be reminded, you know what? You just get up, give me the little bit that you got, and I got you covered, right? People come up to me sometimes and they go, Pastor, it was so amazing when you said X, Y, and Z in that sermon. And I'm like, I don't remember saying that. That's way better than what I said, but thank you. Right, God is communicating to us whenever we just give him whatever little bit we have, right? What he's, what, he's, what he's trying to tell us is that our inability is his opportunity. 
right? It's, it's actually our incompetence and our lack of ability and our lack of capacity that he needs. The scripture says that it's only in our weakness that he can display his strength, right? So he's saying, I want you to just bring me what you got and I'll, send, I'll, I'll take care of it. I'll, I'm a multiplier. I'll make it happen. Let me give you a biblical example of this. I'm going to take you back 1,200 years, okay? 1,200 years before Jesus. Um, many of you know the, the story of Gideon. Gideon is one of my favorite uh, biblical characters. I love Gideon. And we know the story of Gideon. Some of us know the story of Gideon where God called Gideon. And Gideon was like, I can't do it, Lord. I'm the weakest of my tribe. I'm, my tribe's the weakest of, of the clan. Our clan is the weakest in all of Israel. We're just, we're just, I'm not your guy, right? And, and, God, and God calls Gideon and says, I want you to overcome the Midianite army. I want you to fight on behalf of your people. And it's a great story in, in the book of Judges. And, and Gideon finally kind of says, okay, all right, God, I'll do it. Okay, I'll do it, right? And he sends out a call and he says, hey, guys all around Israel, I need, I need as many soldiers as I can get. Right? He finally gets up the courage, and about 32,000 guys show up. About 32,000 would be straggler soldiers, right? Farmers, you know, shepherds, and whatever. And they're like, okay, we'll be in your army. So, 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 now, so now he's got, he's got 32,000 people. He's got, Gideon's got 32,000 people. And so he's getting ready to fight an army that's got 135,000 people. So the odds aren't great, but I mean, 32,000 versus 135, I mean, you know, if, you do, if you're really good, you know, slingshots and stuff, you could figure it out, right? So, so he's kind of feeling okay about this battle that he's going to get into. But notice what the Lord says to him. I love this. I love this moment. Judges 7. The Lord said to Gideon, Gideon, you have too many men. Now, if I'm Gideon, I'm like, are you kidding me? Because I only have 32,000. They have 135,000. How, how can I have too many? The Lord says, you have too many men. I can't deliver Midian into, into your hands or else you guys are going to boast against me saying my own strength has saved me. You got too many. You, you can do this and therefore I don't want you to do this. I want you to do it the way I want you to do it because I want God to get the glory, Right? So he says, uh, announce to your army, the 32,000 guys, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. If you're afraid, go home. So 22,000 men left. <laughs> While 10,000 remain. Let me just thin out your army by two-thirds. So now it's 10,000 versus 135,000. Now Gideon is nervous. Now Gideon's like, I can't, I, there's, I can't, I literally can't pull this off. Like I wasn't even joking before, but I, I literally can't pull this off. Can I just get a few more men? Can I just get a couple extra guys? Here's what the Lord says. The Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. 10,000 is too many, Gideon. I still think that if you guys win, you're going to think it's all you. Take them down to the water and I will thin them out for you there. If I'm Gideon, I'm like, I don't need you to thin them out. I need you to thicken them up. I need a little, I need some strength here. He says, send them down. And then he says, um, watch how they drink. This is a very strange part of the story, but it's so fascinating. He goes, watch how they drink. He says, if they crouch down, okay, they crouch down and they, and, they, and they drink the water like this. They lap it up out of their hands like, like a dog out of a bowl. Um, I want you to keep them in your army. But if they, if they get down on their knees and they put their face down in the water and they, and they suck the water from their, from their hands and knees, he said, cut them loose. And Gideon's like, come on, guys. Somebody crouch for me here, right? And he's looking around, and there's 10,000 guys drinking. 9,700 of them are on their knees with their face in the water. There's only 300 left. There's 300 guys left. 
So Gideon had to send 9,700 home. Verse 8 says, so Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but he kept the 300. So now you got 300 against 135,000. And that's when God goes, all right, we're ready to go. Let's go to battle. Here we go, right? He wants to prove something to Gideon that it's Gideon's inability that is God's opportunity. Sometimes we face impossible situations in life. And that's when God says, good, now we're ready. Now I can do something in you. Now I can shape something in you. Because maybe for the first time in your life, you realize that you're inadequate. You're incapable of doing what I've called you to do. Maybe for the first time in your life, first of all, you're accepting a challenge that's bigger than you can accomplish, right? Because that's what you have to do. You have to say yes to God, right? And secondly, you're learning that you can't do this. You cannot do this without me. You, you cannot possibly do what I'm calling you to do without me. Let me give it to you in a three-part, three, three steps. It's respond, recognize, and rely. This, this is the process that Jesus uses for his disciples. This is the process that God was using with Gideon. You, you, you first respond, you, say, you ultimately say, okay, God, I'll bring you my five loaves and two fish. Okay, God, I will go fight the Midianites. I don't know how to do it, but I'll go do it, right? That's your response. Yes. Yes, God. You recognize your own inability, your own incapacity. You recognize that you don't have the, the strength or the power on your own. That's the recognition. But then ultimately you turn the corner and go, okay, God, I'm just going to rely on you. I'm going to trust that you can do it. I'm just going to trust that you can use my inadequacy for your opportunity. I'm just going to trust that you can use my little bit of strength, my little bit of power, my five loaves, my little bit of resource, my little bit of whatever I got. I'm just going to trust that you can do that. So I'm going to rely upon you. That's what ultimately the, the disciples did. They, they got their little five loaves, five barley loaves, and their two fish, a couple sardines, right? And they come to Jesus and they go, here it is. We're here. We responded. We recognize that we don't have the ability to do it on our own. I guess we're just going to rely on you. We're just going to give you what we got. Look what happens, verse 19. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, Jesus gave thanks and broke the loaves. Let me just stop for just a second. Notice the order. He gave thanks before the miracle. He gave thanks first. He said, God, I know, Father, what you can do. I'm going to trust you before it happens. I'm going to give you the gratitude in my heart for what you're about to do. He gave thanks and he broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the 5,000 plus, 10,000, 12,000 people, 20,000 people. And gave them to all the people, verse 20, and they all ate and they were satisfied. I don't think the word satisfied fully captures what's happening. They, they were full, y'all. They were like in a food coma after this. The people were good. They were happy. They were absolutely full. Now, the miracle could have ended right there. And man, we could do an altar call right now. God will provide all your needs according to his riches and glory, right? We, we, we've, got that, we've got that story. He's always going to make a way, right? It could, it could have ended right there and it would have been a powerful moment. But he's actually trying to do something more than feed the people. He's trying to grow his followers. He's trying to develop them. He's trying to move them from consumers to contributors, right? He's trying to show them what they can actually be if they'll rely upon him. So the miracle is for the people, but it's really for his disciples. It's really so that he can, he can draw his disciples into something greater than they've ever experienced before. Because here's, here's, how it, here's how the story ends. It says this, when they all had enough to eat, 
Everybody had had their, their fill. He said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Don't let anything be wasted. And this is the great part. So they gathered them and they filled 12 baskets. 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. You understand what's going on, right? There's 12 disciples. There's 12 baskets left over. They came for a meal. They ended with a feast. They were hungry. He said, I'm not going to just feed you. I'm going to feed your families. I'm going to, I'm going to, take, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of your cousins. I mean, you can take this back to your village. You can feed the whole village on this basket of food that I'm giving you. What he's teaching us is that the benefits of providing always exceed the rewards of receiving. When we actually accept the call into his ministry, when we accept the call into serving him and to pouring our lives out for him, what happens is the joy of, of being a part of what he is doing far exceeds the joy of being on the receiving end. It's great to get the Pokemon card you want, right? Yeah! Right? Ecstatic. But eventually, it's better to provide the house where the Christmas tree is, where the gift is under, and the food. It's better to be the parent creating the situation where the boy can have some joy, right? As followers of Jesus, Jesus is saying, I want you to... Experience that ecstasy of following me, that that joy, that delight of following me. But at the end of the day, I want you to grow into something that's even better than that. I want you to grow into something where you're actually pouring out, where you're actually performing the miracle yourself on my behalf. I want you to be my hands and feet. Church, I just want to close today by showing you some ways in which you are already a part of this miracle. You are already, if, if you don't know it, Being a follower of Jesus means we're an extension of this miracle. We're we're still doing what God was doing way back then. I'm going to show you a couple things that I think you'll appreciate. About two weeks ago, we got an email from one of the organizations that we support, a place called Oasis International. And Oasis International uh, sent out an email saying, hey, our HVAC unit, um, I mean our HVAC heat and cold uh, is out. This is a few weeks ago. Remember how cold it was? It was like... None of y'all were here because it was too cold. Remember that? Um, <laughs> some of you were here. I just um, <laughs> It was cold. It was really cold. Um, and so we knew, like, man, their, their, heater, their heater's out, right? So a member of our team called them up and said, hey, what do you need to fix it? They told us what they needed. We sent a check, fixed their HVAC, just like that, right? You did that. You did that. You did that because, because you're, a part, you're a part of contributing and providing. Um, around that same week, maybe a week before or a week after, another organization, JADASA, Journey Against Domestic and Sexual Abuse, is an organization that we've worked with over the years. Cynthia Bennett is the executive director. Amazing organization. Um, we saw them on the news because they had a budget shortfall. Um, the county was going to provide them with some funds, and apparently uh, there was a budget shortfall with the county, so they weren't able to provide the funds. So we, we called them up said, what do you need? And we just ended up cutting a $10,000 check to Jadasa so that they could meet their, their year-end budget. And that's, that's... I'm saying this because I want you to know this is what you're doing. You're feeding the thousands. You're feeding the 5,000. Let, let, let me give you two more. Two more. Um, about two and a half years ago, some members of this church launched an organization called The FAM. The FAM, the mission of The FAM is to eliminate the racial gap in home ownership in St. Louis. 
Um, I called John Keel, managing director this week, texted him. I said, how many families have we placed in homes, first-time homeowners? Um, as of last week, this is in two and a half years, 149 first-time homeowners have been placed in homes due to the work of the family. This is what you're, this is what you're doing. This is what you're doing. I'll give you one more. Um, and at, towards the end of the year, we had two churches reach out to us. One is called the Bridge Church up in North County, and the other is called Midtown Church right over here in, in Midtown. Um, and they both were, had some budget shortfalls, and they reached out to us. These are church plants, and they're trying to reach, the, reach their neighborhood with the gospel. We were able at the end of the year just to write a few couple checks, thousands of dollars to each of them to say, hey, we're, we believe in you. We're a part of you. We want you to reach the people in your neighborhood with the gospel. This is just something that you guys are doing. And, th and this is happening over and over and over. I want you to know that even now, you're giving, you are giving thousands of dollars to uh, several campus ministries so that they can reach the, the, the college students on their campus with the gospel. You're supporting a group called Crew. You're supporting a group called InterVarsity. You're supporting a group called uh, Reform University Fellowship. You're supporting a group called The Carver Project. You're, you're, you are currently, you, One Family Church, we, are sending thousands of dollars to these organizations so that they can provide uh, and, and bring the gospel to the people around the world. You're providing mental health care to people who cannot afford it because you're giving thousands of dollars to Avenues Counseling and to Crossroads Counseling. You're providing uh, funding to a group called Seat at the Table that helps young men and women kind of get their bearings and live in a, in a Christian home uh, before they get sent off into adulthood. You're supporting in Excelsis. You're supporting, that they, they serve the homeless uh, people in our city, uh, stepping into the light. This, I could go on and on and on, y'all, but I just want you to know what you're doing. I want you to know that it, is, it truly is more blessed to give than it is to receive. You're a part of a miracle. Like, none of us could have done this. You realize that, right? You couldn't have done this. I couldn't have done this. But when we come together collectively as the body of Christ, <laughs> and we say, God, you know, we're going to give you what we got. I'm not, I'm not getting ready to take an offering. Okay, by the way, so just, you can relax. But when we say, I'm going to give you my time. I'm going to give you my talent. I'm going to give you my treasure. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you, I'm going to give you me. I'm going to give you the inadequacies of me. I'm going to give it all to you because I want to see what you can do through me. I want to see what, God, I want to see what you can do through us. I believe that God, if we submit to him, if we say we want to move from called to committed to commissioned, right? We want to move from gathered to grown to going out, right? And proclaiming the gospel. If, if, that's, if that's what we will do, there is literally no end to what God can do through us. Thousands of people. God can reach thousands of people with the gospel through this, through this congregation. Thousands of children, thousands of high schoolers, thousands of young adults, thousands of marriages and, and older adults. People around the world can come together in Christ, worshiping God, because a group of people like this said, I'm yours. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we want to be like the disciples. We, we know we're inadequate. We know we are incapable of doing what you've called us to do. We know that the goal that you have for us is far greater than the goal that we can imagine for ourselves. And so we're, we recognize that. And we recognize our own inability, our own inadequacy. And so we bring it to you. We just say, 
we've got we've to come to you with what we cannot do so that you can do what you can do through us. Let our weakness be your strength. Let our inability be your opportunity to shine. And may you receive all the honor and all the praise and all the glory. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen.